Uh, Genesis 39, 6 to 12 is where we are in week three, and we're looking at temptation. And um, as I read uh, verses 6 to 12, which is all we're going to need, I think, for today, just the interesting part of this story is almost the cinematic quality of it as this interaction between Joseph and Potiphar's wife takes place. It's almost as if as the author is writing this down, the camera is shifting to tell the story from two different perspectives. And it shifts twice. We sort of see through the lens what is going on with Mrs. Potiphar. Potiphar's wife doesn't get a name, so I'm just going to call her Mrs. Potiphar. And uh, we see the story through the lens or the camera that's facing Mrs. Potiphar. And then at the same time, there's another camera that's sort of showing us the whole same sequence from the perspective of Joseph. And so it's almost cinematic as we go back and forth between Potiphar's wife and Joseph. And so that's how we're going to look at this text and kind of unpack it is the temptation of Potiphar's wife and the response of Joseph to that temptation. But there's learning for us here through both camera lenses. As the camera goes back and forth between these two people in the narrative, there are things for us to learn. And so as I'm reading this, just see how it goes back and forth and how the perspective of this story is different from each person. So he, that's Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard, who bought Joseph out of slavery, he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men in the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. So this is the reading of God's word and this is what we're looking at today in terms of temptation and sin and how we deal with temptation from both of these perspectives, from Mrs. Potiphar and from Joseph. And so let's begin with, with Potiphar's wife. It begins, it says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. So, so here it is from her point of view. There's, there's a new slave in the household, right? Among all the slaves that there are, there's a new one. This Hebrew boy shows up, and maybe she doesn't notice him for a few weeks. But after a while, maybe because he's been there a while or maybe because he starts to rise in the ranks and rises in esteem of her husband, she suddenly takes notice of this particular Hebrew slave. And it says that she cast her eyes upon him, right? He's, he's a singular slave. He's smarter than the rest. He's handsome. He's right off the cover of GQ or Men's Fitness or whatever, right? So, so after a time, she cast her eyes on him. And if, if you grew up with NIV, the NIV doesn't really do this justice. In the NIV, the translation just says she took notice of Joseph. No, no, she didn't take notice of him. She cast her eyes upon him on a regular basis, right? She wanted to see his beauty and be stirred up by his beauty. 
And so let's just pause here and even just consider what the writer is saying there about human nature and human temptation. What is going on? And the first thing that we see here is the powerful vehicle of temptation that our eyes are, especially in this particular temptation of, you know, pursuing other people, but but not only this temptation, but in a great many others. The, and, and the world is aware of this, of course, right? That's why we have television commercials. That's why we have glossy magazines. That's why we have models who advertise things. That's why we have GQ and men's fitness, right? Because the world understands that there is a great power to captivate the eye. And it's not just GQ or men's fitness, right? It could be house and home. It could be road and track. It could be bacon monthly. I don't know whatever your thing is. Right? Whatever your thing is, there's a magazine out there to tempt your eyes. Bacon Monthly is a good idea. Andrew and I are going to get that started, I think. Um, so we just get captivated by our eyes. And we have to understand this as we come to deal with our understanding of temptation is our eyes can be a dangerous trap. And it's been that way right from the beginning. If you look in Genesis 3, 6 even, and the temptation of Eve at the very start in the garden, it says in 3.6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was also to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband. You see, the, the, the first trap of temptation is quite often through our eyes. And like I say, it's not just other people. It's not just GQ. It's not just Shape magazine. It's not just... It's road and track. It's a beautiful house. It's a beautiful cottage. It's a beautiful you know, Thanksgiving dinner table setting. It's anything captivates us through our eyes. And so just be aware of that. And, and also understand this. This is important in our culture. Is that you don't have to read very far between the lines at all to see what sort of person embracing that culture can turn us into. And, and I'm glad that this is a communion Sunday and that our high school students are in here with us. Because our culture will tell you that to desire and be desired is the pinnacle of your value. And you don't have to look very hard between the lines here to believe that this is what captured Mrs. Potiphar's heart. She not only desired, but she needed to be desired. It was not enough that she could cast her eyes on Joseph. It was that Joseph had to desire her, and she would not stop until she was also desired by the object of her desire. And this is a deadly trap. It will destroy your life. And Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat and every teen magazine that you see on the shelves is telling our kids that they must be an object of desire and they must desire others and that their value is intrinsic in that. And if you get caught up in that, you are in the same trap that Potiphar's wife is in, where she will not feel fulfilled until she is desired. Our culture places a high value on desiring others and as on being an object of desire and cultivating an addiction to making ourselves desirable and cultivating an addiction to desiring others and having to be in a relationship all the time, having to have the boys or the girls notice you all through high school, having to make sure you're never without a boyfriend or a girlfriend. To be captivated by that is not something to cultivate, it's something to avoid. I mean, look at me. You don't get this body without hard work at avoiding being desirable. (laughs) This fashion sense does not just come out of anywhere. It takes dedication to be as undesirable as I am. That's a lot of dedication. I heard that. 
I heard that. That's good. No, but, but it is so... We use humor to emphasize what is serious, right? It is so critical. Do not get trapped into the cultivating a need to be desired or to be desirable to others. It's nice to be desired. It's good to be good-looking. It's healthy to be fit. But don't let it become a trap like it is here. Temptation will captivate you through your eyes, and it will captivate others through you, through their eyes. But it's not just that she was caught by her eyes. Temptation goes on. There's a whole process to temptation. She goes on. She's not just casting her eyes on him. Then she persisted in temptation. Verse 10, and she spoke to Joseph day after day, and he would not listen to her. So the camera lens is still on Mrs. Potiphar here, and she is pursuing him day after day, the writer says. She will not relent. She insists. She's persisting in this. And she can't stop dwelling on the idea that has gotten into her head about Joseph. He's denied her, but she continues on insisting and she loses any sense of modesty as she is snared by this need to be desired. And she's clearly at this point feeding her desire at the level of her imagination and fantasy. And when we begin to dwell on our desires and in our temptations and our imagination, then we start to plan on how to make it a reality. I mean, let's shift back to maybe a little more male example here. You might go home today and you're going to be watching NFL football. And what happens on NFL football is they run commercials about trucks. And you're going to see a TV commercial about a new truck or maybe a new boat. And then you start to imagine yourself driving that truck. And it's no longer the actor driving the truck. It's us driving the truck through the canyons of Utah or wherever they're shooting it. Right? And then we start to imagine and we start to think about all the things that we can haul with a new truck, like a new boat. <laughs> right? And then in your mind's eye, you're already there driving the truck, pulling the boat, and then suddenly you are behind the wheel of that new truck and you're smiling. And then just as suddenly you're behind in your payments and your wife is frowning. <laughs> right? Because we take our imagination and we start to conspire, how can I make that a reality? And for Mrs. Potiphar, she casts her eyes and then she says something and then she keeps insisting and she's living in this fantasy that she's created in her mind that she's going to be able to have this affair with Joseph and get away with it. He must desire her. And then she conspires in verse 11. One day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men were in the house. And now I don't really know whether this was just a chance opportunity or if she created it. I mean, she's the master's wife, right? She can tell the slaves to go wherever she wants them to go. And if she wanted the house empty, she could order the slaves out. It seems suspicious enough because when Joseph walks in, he notices the house is empty. Like, this is not usual. Where have all the slaves gone? And so I think maybe Potiphar's wife conspired to have the house empty. And that's what we do with our temptation, right? We see something, then we start to imagine it, and then we start to conspire. How can I arrange circumstances so I just happen to be in the right place at the right time? Oh, I couldn't do anything about it, right? I was just there. You know, we just had a meeting together. Or, you know, I just, you know... The truck broke down and I took it into the shop and that truck was there and the guy made a good argument. So, you know, honey, we got a new truck. You know, isn't that amazing? So we conspire. We just work to have things happen the way we are. And when our imagination is dwelling on things, this is where our desire leads us and we start to plan out how it becomes a reality. And then finally, captured by her eyes and her imagination and by her own planning, she just abandons all decency and throws herself into the sin in verse 12. So she caught him by his garment. I am going to get this no matter what, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand. And again, the cinematic qualities of this in the storytelling is amazing. Just notice again, Joseph loses his cloak. Right? The last time Joseph lost his cloak, it did not go well for him. Right? 
You know, and, and the writer here is showing us, like, Joseph is stripped of his cloak again. It's like foreshadowing, because it's not going to turn out well for him again as he loses his cloak. And that is the temptation that's taking place as seen by Potiphar's wife, right? It's, I, I think it's likely that she set herself up for this sort of trouble, right? at the very beginning in her, in her life because she was cultivating a fascination over her looks that she had to be beautiful, that she had to be desired. She was just that type of person that needed that fulfillment in the wrong place. Her desire was to be desired, but in the wrong way. Her desire is not bad, okay? And that's going to be important when we get to Joseph. Her desire for affection, her desire to be valued, her desire to be desired is not bad in and of itself, but she was cultivating it in all the wrong ways and places so now let's consider the same scene as we understand that's how temptation works it's a process to temptation and you'll do more on that in the homework and in your growth groups but now let's look at joseph how do we deal with temptation well the first thing we see as we turn the lens to joseph is that he was decisive verse 8 from joseph's perspective begins but he refused as clear as mrs potiphar was in her approach joseph was just as clear in his refusal And the question to my mind comes in reading this is how Joseph was so quickly and immediately determined in his mind that this was his response because it took him no time to reject this proposal by this beautiful woman. And surely she was beautiful, right? She's an Egyptian woman. She's the wife of the captain of the guard and beautiful, successful people very often marry beautiful, successful spouses, right? I mean... Tom Brady, quarterback, probably the greatest quarterback of all time, grudgingly admitted. I know, boo. But Tom Brady's wife is Giselle Bunsen, right? You think that's a mistake? Their offspring are going to be like miracle babies. Genetically. Their Their blood can probably cure cancer. I don't know. But this is what happens, right? This is a beautiful woman. This is a beautiful woman. But Joseph immediately says he refuses her he refuses her immediately and and what i read into that and i don't want to read too much between the lines in scripture but i think what we can take from that is i believe that joseph was prepared for this whether because the other slaves told him that this is what mrs potiphar gets up to or simply because he had his heart set on god and following god's word and i know that's true too we know that later on in his in his in his story that he's stayed true to god through his whole life But here he is, a young teenager, far from home and family. He's in a foreign country. Nobody knows him. He's a slave. Virtuous behavior is not really expected of him by anybody, right? It's hot weather. It's sunny days. There's sand everywhere. This is his Daytona Beach. But he is resolved in his mind before he gets there, I think, that if this situation arrives, his answer is no. He's already decided because he is able to quickly refuse Mrs. Potiphar. He doesn't even hesitate. He's anticipated this. And so you can rarely stand the heat of a temptation. You can rarely stand the heat of the attack in the moment. You are far better off to already have it settled, the matter in your mind, and resolved it before the temptation arrives. And I think this is what Joseph had done. He had already anticipated the weakness that he would face in this situation. He had already anticipated the reality of the vulnerability and the situation that he was in. And he had already anticipated and resolved in his mind what his answer would be. So that in the heat of the moment, he didn't have to think about it. He was all prayed up. He was all thought out on this issue and had already decided. Job 31.1 says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I look upon a virgin? 
So Job says he actually negotiated a covenant in his mind with his eyes. He resolved in a solemn covenant that his eyes would not stray in that way. And that's what we have to do with temptation. We have to anticipate it and we have to resolve ahead of time. It's too late when you're already at the party. It's too late when you're already at the bar. It's too late when you're already watching the movie. It's too late when you're already in the compromised situation. It's too late when you're already vulnerable to then decide you're going to now try to sort out what your response is going to be. Know your weaknesses and your vulnerabilities. Know where temptation is going to come from and resolve ahead of time what your answer is going to be. And we can compare Joseph's example here to Judah in the previous chapter. Right? His, his older brother Judah, at the exact same time as this is going on, his older brother has left. He's out traveling. He's literally on a business trip to meet his sheep shearers. And so here's Judah on a business trip, and he's not resolved anything. And he's walking into town where he's meeting his associates, and he thinks he sees, he sees someone who he thinks is a prostitute at the gate to the city, and he doesn't even have the money to pay her. He's so unprepared, but he just jumps at the opportunity to sleep with this woman. He says, oh, I'll send you a goat later. And she's like, well, give me your signet and your staff or something as collateral until you send me the goat later, right? Judah is like the opposite of Joseph here. He's completely unprepared for the temptation. It's just a woman standing fully clothed at at the city gate, and he can't resist. And so we see this comparison that's going on here between Joseph and Judah. But we must anticipate temptation and decide ahead of time. Secondly, Joseph's response is principled and rational. Verse 8 and 9, he says, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. And so you see, Joseph had already thought this through reasonably, in the cold light of reason, not in the heat of the moment, but in the cold light of reason, he'd already figured out. He'd played out this scenario to the natural conclusion, and he sees the trap. Right? He, he knows that what Mrs. Potiphar is proposing is a, is a fantasy. He's like, hold on here. My master's put me in charge of everything. I have anything I want except you. You're the only thing I can't have. And so why would it make any sense for me to spoil this amazing situation that I have and to offend my master in order to do that? And he, he sees the rationality. He has the principles in place. He understands, it's like, what? how did you think we would get away with this? Does this not end badly either way? Like, even if you say you're going to keep it a secret, you're not going to tell your husband, this is, there's no way this is going to end well. But he also knows that this is contrary to God's word. Joseph has a set core of values and principles that he's staying true to, and he can't betray the trust of his master, nor take advantage of another woman. These are things that God's word, that he knows God's word, and God's word says you don't betray the trust of people. You don't take another man's wife. You don't take advantage of another woman. There are principles and core values here that Joseph has built his life on in order to resist temptation. And notice that a different person might have thought through the exact same circumstances and come to a very different conclusion than Joseph if they didn't have those principles in place. Another person would have thought it the same way through. I'm away from home. I'm in a warm climate with a beautiful and willing woman. My master's given me everything in his household. She's kind of my boss too, so how can I say no? I mean, he's given me everything else. I'm just assuming maybe he's given me her too. I mean, it's the same circumstances, but you could rationalize your way through this and say, oh, it's fine. Potiphar's given me everything else. He must be giving me her too. She's kind of my boss. I should obey her. Nobody's expecting anything of me. So we have to be careful here that our brains might be first telling us a fantasy. Oh, this is fine for you to do. This is perfectly reasonable. This is perfectly rational. This is perfectly justified. 
You'll be able to get away with it. Our brains will try to tell us that. But we have to be like Joseph and we have to be rational and we have to be firmly principled in God's core values. The logic and the principles were not the only consideration of Joseph and there was that, there was his situation, there was his job, there was the law, there was ethics, there was all of that, his relationship with Potiphar. But notice that that is not the deciding factor for Joseph in dealing with this temptation. He concludes his reasoning very unexpectedly. After talking about Potiphar and all the things that Potiphar had given him and the relationship that he has there and the good situation that he's in, he concludes it with, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Not against Potiphar, not against Mrs. Potiphar, but sin against God. Well, what's that about? This is the important one. Joseph had a greater affection. Tempted with one affection, Joseph had a greater affection. It would be an offense against the God that he loves. And what becomes clear as the story of Joseph unfolds is that he is a boy, he is a young man who has never turned his affection away from God. He has felt the blessing of God with him even in his struggles. And he gives God the praise for his dreams and the interpretation of dreams that he will do. He lives a life principled and in line with God's word. And his final stand in this temptation is not that it will only that it will offend Potiphar, or that it would be an abuse against Mrs. Potiphar, but that it would offend God. And he loves God more than he loves his own gratification. Why else would he care what God thinks? We make decisions thinking about what other people think because we love them, and we care for them, and we respect them, and we honor them. Right? When you were a little boy or a little girl... When you were about to do something you knew you weren't supposed to do, there was a part of your brain that was saying, what's mom going to think if I do this? Or what's grandma going to think if I do this? That's because you love mom and you love grandma and you love dad and you love grandpa. And you didn't want to let them down. And your affection for them, hopefully, was greater than the temptation for that immediate gratification. And that's what's going on here. I want you to see this. Joseph had a greater affection for God than he had for his own immediate self-gratification. And so what does that mean then? It means Joseph wouldn't risk his relationship with God simply to follow a fleeting temptation. And so when we're dealing with temptation, I, I can't emphasize this enough, the most important thing that we can do to be prepared for temptation is to cultivate an affection for God. Okay, and understand that this is what Scripture is teaching. Scripture is not saying God is a cosmic, you know, killjoy. And he has a list of 10 or 100 or 660 rules that you cannot break these rules. No, what God is saying is, I am a greater joy. I am a better affection. I am a more sufficient satisfaction for you. And if you place your affection and your satisfaction and your desire on me, then all these lesser desires diminish and they fade away. That's how we deal with temptation, by cultivating an affection for God like Joseph had. Because Joseph was in a situation where he said, I have such great honor and respect and worship and affection and love for God that I could not dare spoil that relationship by pursuing this tawdry affair. And so when we're tempted, especially when we face continuous temptation day after day, year after year in our life, God does not say, just give that pleasure up. You know, you have to live like a monk. You're not allowed to have any joy or desire or pleasure or beauty in your life. No, God says, I'm a greater beauty. I am a greater pleasure. I am a greater satisfaction than any of those cheap things. 
So set your heart on me and I will satisfy you. My ways are good and I am good. And so along with his preparedness and his principles and his greater affection, we also see here that Joseph has a plan to get out of the situation of temptation. Joseph has a plan. And it's a simple plan, really. And for the sake of his dignity and self-esteem, let's call it strategic retreat, right? His plan is to just run away. Verse 12, he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house, okay? He just, that's his plan, just run. I'm in this situation. I've already made up my mind. I don't want to be in that situation. I know that I love God far more than I love whatever outcome is going to come from this. And so my simple plan here, run, just go, just get out of the situation, And the problem with sin and temptation is we toy with it in our minds like Mrs. Potiphar did. As we we dwell on it and fantasize about it is we start to think that we can handle sin in the heat of the moment. We start to think that we are stronger than our temptation and that we can deal with our sin. And I love the illustration that Matt Chandler often uses. He refers to a news story in 2008 of a a model who's shooting a commercial with with a, a tame lion. And there's a video on YouTube, of course, if you want to look it up. I don't suggest it, but long story short, the lion is not tame or it's not impressed with the product and and it turns on her, right? This tame lion turns on the model, ends up breaking her ribs, big gash on her face, probably ruined her career, right? Nasty wounds. But as ridiculous as that seems to us of just sort of toying with a carnivore like that we do this with sin we think that we can keep our little bit of sin as a tame pet right we think oh this is not so difficult to deal with right i'll just yank the leash and my my tame sin that gives me a little bit of pleasure will just do my beck and call okay sin is not tame it is a roaring lion sin is an alpha predator Satan wants to destroy us. Don't think that you can keep your temptation and your sin on a leash and use sin and temptation as a distraction at your own pleasure. You cannot tame it. Temptation is not something you play with, and sin is not something that you should be sprinkling in your lives as a bit of flavor. Oh, we'll just have a little bit of sin to spice things up. No, sin is poison. It's death. How much poison would you like in your soup today? Oh, just a little poison. But we do that with sin, don't we? Right? We have our little guilty pleasures. We have our little temptations that we toy with in our minds or we toy with in reality from time to time. And we think it's on a leash like a lion and we can just have a little bit or we can tame it at our desire. But you cannot tame sin. It will destroy you. And so we must have a plan to deal with temptation. And the plan is stay away. Don't toy with it. Don't do a commercial with a lion. Right? Don't have it in your house. It's not a pet. So Joseph says, no, not even once, not ever, not even going to think about it. I'm going to run away from this. How could I do this wicked thing against God? Now, fifthly, there are consequences. Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. There may still be consequences even if you resist temptation, even if you resist sin. It's not like God runs in necessarily and gives you a gold star and a big blessing and says everything's going to be great now because you passed that test. In fact, resisting sin and resisting temptation will quite often result in consequences because if you stand up in our culture today with integrity and stand for something against the way the culture or your friends are going, there will be consequences even in your 
integrity. And who's Mrs. Potiphar trying to kid, really? Joseph's going to end up in prison either way. Actually, if, if, if Joseph actually did sleep with Potiphar's wife, he wouldn't end up in prison. He would be dead. He would be killed. He would be accused of rape and he would be killed. But Joseph faces his consequences with his relationship with God strengthened by obedience rather than weakened by sin. Don't miss that. If Joseph had given in, there still would have been consequences, but he would have been facing those consequences as a follower of God who had fallen, who had not been obedient, who had given in to temptation. He'd be facing those consequences with his relationship with God on shaky ground. But now Joseph is facing consequences in prison, sure, but he's facing those consequences standing firmly in his relationship with God instead of weakly. And so if we're going to face consequences, wouldn't you much rather face those consequences with your relationship with God firmly intact and knowing that his blessing is fully upon you through your obedience? Of course you would. So there will be consequences, but there's going to be consequences either way. So go into those consequences with your relationship with God intact. Imagine a few years later, Joseph riding through the streets in his chariot right behind the Pharaoh. And Mrs. Potiphar, if she is still Mrs. Potiphar by then, is forced to bow to her old slave. Genesis 41:43 says that when Pharaoh raised Joseph up, put him on a chariot, rode him through, and had heralds going ahead saying, everybody has to bow to Joseph. Everybody in the kingdom of Egypt has to bow to Joseph. Yeah, you know who's in the crowd? Mrs. Potiphar. And she's got to bow to this slave who had more integrity than she had. Who has stood firm in his convictions and in his love for God. And he's the one who's being bowed to in the future. Imagine the reward as you go forward into the consequences, but with the blessing of God. All of this is not good news if we just have to white-knuckle it. If, if, if all I'm telling you to do is just, you know, kind of just hang on and white-knuckle and, you know, you'll get through by your own sheer willpower, that's not good news. The good news here is God's grace. Jesus was tempted in every way, but did not sin. Joseph was tempted and did not sin. Jesus was tempted in every way and did not sin. Joseph was falsely accused. Jesus was falsely accused. Joseph was thrown into a prison, literally into a pit. Jesus was thrown into the pit of the high priest Caiaphas. Joseph is stripped of his cloak. Jesus is stripped of his cloak and has gambled for. Joseph descended into prison. Jesus descended into the grave. Joseph rose up out of prison to become a blessing to all the nations. He planned for the famine, and Egypt had food to bless all the nations. Jesus came up out of the grave to have spiritual food for the nations and to be a blessing to all the nations. Every knee bowed to Joseph. Every knee will bow to Jesus. Jesus did all of this to offer grace to those who could not set themselves free, to set them free from the bondage of sin. The word of God comes to you and it comes to me and it says, listen, your sins and your iniquities, I will remember them no more. Jeremiah 31, 34. The word of God comes to us and it says, I will drown your iniquities in the sea of my forgetfulness. Micah 7, 19. 
God comes to us and he says, I will respond to you the way that Jesus responded to the woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8. When all the Pharisees were gathered up, stones ready to strike the woman down and stone her, Jesus looked around and said, you without any sin, you go first. And they all hang their heads and they all shuffle off. And when he turns to the woman, he says, so where are your accusers? And she says, I don't see any. And notice Jesus' word. He says, I'm not accusing you either. Now go and leave your life of sin. God's not accusing us. Jesus is not accusing us. Jesus wants to set us free from our sin. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. We have a God who loves us. Joseph could face his temptation because his affection for that God was greater than the desire of that moment. The best thing that you can do to deal with temptation in your life is not to toy with it like a pet lion, but to run from it and put and cultivate an affection for God that is superior to any affection that might be trapping you in this world. That is the freedom that God wants for us. Freedom from sin and pleasure and satisfaction and fulfillment in Him. Let's pray.